With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, the growing season is moving along quickly, but it's likely to slow back down because of rain. We'll have more on that. But we start today with Brian German. In this week's California Chill Hour report brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. We're continuing our conversation with Masood Kesri, research director at the Mari Agricultural Research Institute. He noted that their research has shown positive results for Dormex applications in pistachios in the first year of a multi-year project and explained some of the results they observed in the second year. In 2023, we repeated the trial and uh, monitored the chill portion every week before application. And we found out that compared to 2020 to 2023 will be a high chill year. So in 2023, we decided to apply Dormex at CP65, which was around February 10th, and CP70, which was around February 20th. Actually, our prediction was correct because we were monitoring the chill portion every week. And in 2023, we experienced a luxurious high chill year. And the chill portion accumulation for both fields reached to around CP75, I can say. We know that that's a good chill portion for both Peters and Chairman. So we did not expect a magic happens in terms of yield because the main concept of using the rest breaking agent is to advance and synchronize the bloom of male and the female trees. Kesri said that it was important to test the efficacy of Dormex in 2023 because it turned out to be a good chill year, especially compared to 2022. For us, it was important to see both bloom synchronization between male and female trees and also the yield. For the bloom synchronization, I can say that because 2023 was a very high chill year and the bloom window from Botswell to full bloom was extended compared actually to low or marginal chill year, so application of Dormex, especially at CP70, could extend the male Peter's bloom window further. So in a high chill year, 2023, male and female non-sprayed control trees had a proper bloom synchronization. However, the right timing of Dormex application could further improve it. So I can say that the optimal bloom window and synchronization between male and female trees was for Dormex sprayed at CP70. And the other thing is that Dormex at CP70 increased the yield around 220 pounds per acre. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of January 30th, the Durham Simmons Station has logged 54.3 portions under the dynamic model with 744 hours below 45 degrees. The station in Manteca has registered 50 portions with 627 hours. There's been 824 hours in Merced with 49.2 cumulative portions. In five points, there have been 670 chill hours, equating to 48.1 portions. Finally, the Simmons Station in Shafter has registered 45.9 portions with 678 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in again next week for another episode. Increased precipitation in several reporting states was reflected in USDA's latest look at topsoil moisture ratings. Rod Bain has more. 
USDA's latest look at topsoil moisture per its end of January state stories report indicates. Looking at the states that are reporting topsoil moisture, we have seen a marked moistening trend across much of the United States. With USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey noting marked improvement over the past month in the south and lower Midwest. Among those 25 or so states that are reporting topsoil moisture at the end of January, we see quite a list that have topsoil moisture where it is now at least 30% surplus and almost all that list of states is an area that has been affected by drought quite significantly at some point during the summer or autumn of 2023. Led by Ohio at 62% topsoil moisture surplus. If you flip to the dry side, we still have a few pockets of dryness. Many of them are in either the far north or the far southwest parts of the United States. With significant dryness in states such as New Mexico and Montana. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour and it is available on both Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. For today's National Spotlight, we go to Rusty Halverson. Farmers might actually get a chance to deduct larger equipment purchases and buildings after the House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed a $78 billion tax package on Wednesday night. The House voted 357 to 70 to pass a tax package that includes a mix of business tax credits along with an expansion of the child tax credit. Under the bill, farmers and other small businesses would get a boost from plans to allow 100% bonus depreciation for certain property, including 20-year buildings. Or farmers could opt for a slightly higher Section 179 deduction for 2024 equipment, which serves the same purpose. House Ways and Means Committee Chair Jason Smith recently warned on CNBC that bonus depreciation would phase down without that legislation. It was 80% last year, it's 60% this year, it'll go to 40% next year. We're making it at 100% once again. And Smith told the Ways and Means Committee the legislation also provides relief from another big expense farmers and other businesses face. Right now, small and mid-sized businesses are getting hammered by interest rates that are the highest in 23 years. Smith says the tax package is pro-growth, pro-jobs, and pro-America. Elsewhere on Capitol Hill, U.S. Representatives Jim Costa of California, Jimmy Panetta of California, Adrian Smith of Nebraska, and Dusty Johnson of South Dakota launched the bipartisan Congressional Agricultural Trade Caucus to advance and promote policies vital to U.S. agriculture, including boosting agricultural exports, facilitating food and agricultural trade, and knocking down unnecessary trade barriers. The bipartisan caucus will work to solidify support for trade policies that benefit farmers, ranchers, producers, rural communities, and all those along our food and agricultural supply chains. Meanwhile, Republicans in Congress are criticizing what they called a secret agreement between the Biden administration and four Northwest Pacific tribes meant to eventually breach four dams on the Lower Snake River. During a subcommittee hearing, House Energy and Commerce Committee Chair Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington said the administration is ignoring the concerns of stakeholders. 
For more than two years, the Biden administration worked behind closed doors with a select group to develop a secret package of actions and commitments that would temporarily settle litigation temporarily over the future of our river system. The agreement was released last month, and I am deeply concerned it advances efforts to remove the four lower Snake River dams. Grain terminals on the Snake River account for about 10% of all U.S. wheat exports. $27 billion of total cargo was shipped on the Snake River system in 2022, which includes 33 million tons of grain. I'm Rusty Halverson. That's today's National Spotlight. In today's Livestock News, we have more on the new USDA pilot program designed to grade beef cuts and carcasses remotely. Rod Bain reports. It is a familiar symbol to consumers at the meat counter of grocery stores and retail centers. USDA grade marks are used to communicate quality of products. In this particular case, we're talking about beef. You go to the grocery store, you see USDA Prime, USDA Choice. That is an indicator of what sort of eating experience that you should expect from that product. That nomenclature is used broadly, not just domestically, but overseas to communicate that up and down the value chain. Yet as Jennifer Porter of USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service points out, what many customers may not realize is... This is a user fee service, so it is paid for by those facilities. Unlike federal inspection carried out by the Food Safety Inspection Service, grading is not required. So those graders that are there in those facilities, that service is paid for by the plant. So larger packing plants and processing facilities have economies of scale working for them to utilize this grading service. For smaller sized operations, there are challenges to bringing a grader on board. Because it's a user fee driven program, they also have to charge fees for smaller plants when they request grading service. In many cases, that's not on a regular eight hour a day cadence. That's much more as the need arrives in an ad hoc manner. That is very often cost prohibitive for those operations. That is where a new USDA pilot program comes in tested at about 20 packing facilities in 2023 as part of a feasibility study before piloting, grading is done remotely. Once the plant is ready to actually do some grading, what they do is capture video and photos and transmit those to us. And a USDA grader has been evaluating them remotely. Plants using remote grading pay only for the time spent by the USDA grader, several minutes versus an eight-hour shift on-site. This would in turn provide cost savings for participating packers while assuring quality for their products and opportunity to use the USDA grade on their meats as a value-added opportunity. Porter says AMS will study and monitor during the pilot program. How does this look for facilities that maybe operate at different scale? Are the technical components relevant? Are there ways that we can improve the oversight component to make sure that the integrity of the grade mark is still intact? Because that remains a paramount focus for us. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A new USDA cattle report shows beef cattle herd will continue to shrink. Gary Crawford has more. 
Is the beef cattle industry ready to reverse its current contraction phase of the cattle cycle? This report is, is basically pointing to the fact that it is not. Agriculture Department Livestock Analyst Shale Shagham talking about Wednesday's USDA cattle inventory report showing declines from January 1st a year ago in almost every phase of the cattle industry, including the inventory of all cattle and calves. We're beginning the year about 2% below a year ago, with producers retaining fewer heifers for a beef cow replacement. We're also looking at tighter supplies of cattle, which are going to be available for uh, placement on feed during 2024. The general takeaway from this report would be that the contraction is, is continuing and currently looks like it will be continuing through 2024. Possibly into 2025, leading to smaller cattle numbers, higher cattle prices. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report. But first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's AgNet West headlines, here's Brian German. After warming up for a few days, rain and cold temperatures are back for most of California. Sales account manager for AgroLiquid Dylan Rogers described what he's been seeing in orchards and how recent weather is impacting crop progression. These warmer temperatures have probably started speeding some things up. And like you said, if we get a big temperature swing and some cold, wet weather, it'll kind of slow some things down a little bit. I think probably the biggest problem is going to be if we do get the kind of a rain they're talking about, you know, heard anywhere from three to six, seven inches of rain the next week, it's definitely going to make some fields wet and guys are going to struggle to get spray rigs in the fields. So I'd say stay on top of your fungicide program once the fields do dry out and you're able to get in. But things are definitely moving fast. I'm looking out the window here at my pasture and I bet this grass has grown a couple inches in the past couple of days. So moving quickly. The Center for Produce Safety has allocated over $2.7 million to fund 10 new research projects aimed at addressing critical food safety concerns in the fresh produce industry. The projects involve researchers from various U.S. states and Spain focusing on topics such as risks associated with waxing roller brushes, enteric viruses, and more. The research encompasses whole and fresh cut produce, spanning fields and packing houses with potential implications for the broader fresh produce supply chain. Supported by industry contributors and state specialty crop block grant programs, CPS selected the projects through an annual call for research proposals, which were refined by CPS technical committee members and volunteers to ensure alignment with industry needs. The project set to be completed within one to two years commenced this month and findings will be presented at the 2024 CPS Research Symposium. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's introduced the remote grading pilot for beef project to provide better access to USDA carcass quality grades. Developed by USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service, the project utilizes imaging technology to assess beef carcass characteristics from a remote location. This reduces costs and location-related barriers, allowing smaller operations to benefit from the valuable USDA grading service. The program aims to enhance marketing opportunities for cattlemen, with support from organizations like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and the U.S. Cattlemen's Association. The remote grading process involves trained plant employees capturing images of live animals and carcasses electronically submitted to a USDA grader for assessment. The pilot aims to gather additional information on costs and in-person surveillance needed, formalizing remote grading as part of the USDA Quality Grading Service. Legislation's been introduced to extend a vital program within the California Department of Food and Agriculture. 
Assembly Bill 1861 has been introduced in the California Assembly to help combat Pierce's disease and invasive species in the state's vineyards and wineries. Sponsored by the California Association of Wine Grape Growers and the Wine Institute, the bill addresses the significant threat posed by the glassy-winged sharpshooter and Pierce's disease, which has caused millions of dollars in damage to vineyards over the past 30 years. AB 1861 seeks to extend the Pierce's Disease Control Program and the PD GWIS Board from 2026 to 2031, pending approval through a 2025 referendum. The program's been instrumental in controlling the spread of both Pierce's disease and glassy-winged sharpshooters through collaborative efforts involving federal, state, and local agencies, along with grower-funded research. The Agriculture Council of America has declared March 19th as National Agriculture Day. This year's theme is Agriculture Growing a Climate for Tomorrow. Activities include a virtual program and in-person events in Washington, D.C., where students will interact with legislators. The ACA emphasizes the growing interest of students in advocating for agriculture and shaping its future. With over 22 million jobs linked to the agricultural and food sector, ACA President Ginny Pickett highlights the diverse career opportunities beyond farming, including scientists, biologists, and conservationists. The 51st National Ag Day aims to educate Americans on the production of food, fiber, and fuel, emphasizing agriculture's impact on the economy. The program encourages understanding, appreciation, and consideration of careers in the agriculture, food, and fiber industry. More information about this year's event is available at agday.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thank you, Brian. The Ag Secretary discusses food as medicine. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack gives his views on the subject of food as medicine during a Health and Human Services Department summit. I lost my parents at a very early age from disease, which no doubt probably was indeed related to environmental and food issues. So there's a personal reason for being engaged in this. I think there's also a recognition that as we learn more about the science behind food and its capacity to in fact be medicine, we can indeed reduce the risk of chronic disease in this country, which obviously will have an impact on the individual who will leave healthier lives. It will also have an impact on our capacity to fund other aspects of our economy. We spend a great deal of government funding and, frankly, of our own individual finances on health care and health care insurance. To the extent that we can be a better consumer, reducing the risk of chronic disease, we can also, I think, free up resources that can then go into building a healthier and stronger country and world. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back. There's been a breakthrough in the world to make jet fuels that are more environmentally friendly. Gary Crawford has more. There have been dozens of songs over the years dealing with what's possible and what isn't, and what can and what can't be done. For example, They said it couldn't be done, but I said that I Nobody in 1965 thought it was possible for this group, the Duprees, to have a hit song. I still don't. But as we know, our notions as to what's possible and what isn't can change drastically. And in fact, we saw that happen just recently. What was at one time conceived to be impossible, now has been proved on this location today as possible. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack in the small town of Soperton, Georgia, the other day, participating in a history-making event, it turns out. The opening ceremonies for the Lanza Jet Freedom Pines Fuels Facility, the first such plant in the world that can take ethanol, Take that ethanol and turn it into sustainable, low-carbon emission aviation fuel, which Secretary Vilsack says the aviation industry wants and desperately needs. 
At the end of the day, if we're really to uh, mitigate the consequences of a changing climate, the transportation sector clearly has to get to a net zero future. In order for it to get to a net zero future, uh, aviation uh, has to get there as well. Uh, and it can't get there without a sustainable aviation fuel. And there's very little of that jet fuel out there right now that would qualify as sustainable. That percentage is 0.1%. One-tenth of 1%. That's it. So it's practically zero, according to Deputy Energy Secretary David Turk. Aviation uh, is an awful lot of our emissions. 11% of our transportation emissions, and transportation is the largest segment of emissions in our country, 11% of that comes from aviation. That is an awful lot of emissions out there. Which will need to come down to net zero by 2050. Up to now, there's not been a practical way of producing sustainable aviation fuels. Many people said it couldn't be done. But now, 14 years in development later, there is a way with this new production plant leading the way. Jimmy Samarsis is the CEO of Lanza Jet. This is a first-of-a-kind technology, first-of-a-kind facility that we are going to deploy across the country and across the globe. Agriculture Secretary Bill Sykes says this is not just a step forward for the aviation industry. He says each year an alarming number of farms and rural businesses in this country go out of business. But this project, this industry, provides a ray of hope to reverse that trend. Bill Sachs says if things go as planned, there will be plants like this one across the country generating a lot of demand for the feedstocks to make the ethanol. There ought to be multiple feedstocks uh, in order to, for this market opportunity to be available all over the United States, not just in one or two regions of the country. Bill Sachs says the sustainable aviation fuel industry will bring new jobs for rural residents, new markets for farmers. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Property owners with timber on their land have tax implications to consider, especially if it's used as a profit motive. Rod Bain reports. Landowners, if you have forest on your acreage and perhaps sell timber from that property or own the land for investment-only purposes, tax planning needs to be considered, especially with April 15th approaching. Greg Fry of the U.S. Forest Service starts with the types of tax classifications for timber landowners. Hobby, personal use, investment, and trader business. The first two classifications signify the property owner does not have a profit motive for their timber land. Profit is the motive, though, for both the investment and trader business categories. So an investor is somebody who owns the forest land, they let the timber grow, they intend to make money off the timber growing, but they're not as actively involved in the day-to-day -day doing a lot of forest management. They're mostly just letting the timber grow for them. Whereas a business would be someone who is much more actively and regularly involved in managing their forest and producing the timber from it. What about changes to tax law that timber landowners need to be aware of when filing their 2023 tax returns. For starters, if you had some equipment that would normally be depreciated over time for tax purposes, in the past few years, you've been able to use what's called bonus depreciation and deduct that fully in the year it was purchased. And for 2023, you're only allowed to deduct 80% of that through bonus depreciation. And that's going to scale down over time. As for conservation easements for tax purposes, if you had a conservation easement created in 2023, you'll want to look at the new laws about how those deductions can be calculated. There are questions about forest land, carbon market participation, 
add taxes. From the income perspective, if you participate in a carbon market with your forest land, you may get paid for taking carbon out of the atmosphere and that gets turned into standing trees. And various markets might certify that as a carbon offset or a carbon credit. And then you as a landowner could sell that credit and make money. That income from the sale of a carbon credit can be taxable. But there's a lot of questions about at what point that would be taxable. Fry says resources are available to forest landowners who are required to file tax returns. We've recently published the tax tips for 2023, which is a really brief overview of some of the main provisions in tax law that affect many forest landowners. This Forest Service Land Grant University jointly produced resource is available at www.tibertax, all one word, org. In terms of finding a local tax professional with expertise in forest land tax planning. If you contact your cooperative extension agent, they may be able to point you in the direction of a tax advisor in your area that can work with you. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The United Soybean Board has new leadership. Here's Chad Smith with details. Ohio farmer Steve Reinhardt is the organization's 2024 chair. Reinhardt says it's an honor to lead the USB. It's great to be uh, the United Soybean Board and the 515,000 soybean farmers we have around the country. We have 77 volunteer board members that serve, and it's just an honor for me to be able to help lead them through this next year. I've served as treasurer and a value alignment committee coordinator for the USB, and the value alignment committee, of course, is our committee that looks at all of our investment processes and our portfolio development in order to take that check off dollars and then give that return back to the U.S. soybean farmer. Reinhardt says his background has prepared him for the new role. In our farm, we have soybeans, corn, wheat, and some other crops there to a smaller extent, but I've also served as an ag instructor and an FFA advisor. served a term in our county commission office and then also four terms in the Ohio House of Representatives. So I have a pretty well-rounded background and able to make sure that we can talk with people and try to look at where we need to be investing in order to make U.S. soybean farmers profitable. Reinhardt talks about the investments he's most excited about. Well, we have really three areas that we look at in uh, supply and demand, and we have infrastructure and connectivity, and I think we're looking at broadband and, of course, what we can do with our rail river and road transportation, and, of course, to keep uh, soybeans flowing across the countryside. And then I think we look at innovation and technology, what we can do for soybean meal and soybean oil. And then the last one is health and nutrition, and I think while livestock is still our biggest meal customer, we want to also look at the human health side and see how we can maybe help address malnutrition around the world. Chad Smith reporting. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. For today's featured interview, I'm talking with one of the researchers who spoke this week at the Cultiva Fruit Cuticle Summit. Here's Joss Rose of Cornell University. My name is Joss Rose. Um, I'm from Cornell University and I'm a professor in the section of plant biology in the School of Integrative Plant Science. So we are here in Las Vegas, Nevada today at, at an event where you were speaking about the fruit cuticle. And this is a new topic for a lot of people, but can you tell me, just explain briefly for our listeners who may or may not be agricultural, um, what the fruit cuticle is and why it's important. Okay, well, a cuticle is a hydrophobic layer that covers the surface of all above ground 
parts of plants, um, uh, leaves and stems, um, flowers and so on. I work in my, my lab a lot on fruit and uh, particularly on tomato fruit, which has a big thick cuticle. If anybody's peeled a tomato fruit, that's a lot of cuticle coming off. Um, and that's our model system. So the growers here today are learning about the importance of the cuticle and how it helps to protect overall the fruit. Can you tell our listeners, our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so the cuticle in general is hydrophobic, as I said, and it's probably its major role is to prevent desiccation, right? So plants live out in a very challenging environment. Um, so the cuticle is a barrier to water loss and to water entry. Um, it's also a barrier to pests and pathogens. Um, it filters out UV light. So if you want to be a, a plant on land, you need a cuticle to protect you. Right. So what are some ways that the cuticle can be protected? So, so essentially it acts as this very great hydrophobic layer that covers the surface, as I said. So water won't be lost from the plant. Um, it's also a structural barrier, so fungi and bacteria can't find their way into the plant to infect it. Um, and it's got compounds embedded in the cuticle that will help filter out UV radiation. And also it helps um, the biomechanical properties of, of, of the organ as well. When we're looking at issues of, let's start out with maybe issues of cold stress. Um, if we're dealing with issues of cold stress or heat stress in plants or in fruit, will the cuticle help protect, if you have a, a good cuticle, will you help protect against that? Yeah, so heat stress, right, would be associated with water loss and, and, uh, and drought particularly. So again, you've got that lovely that coating, that cuticle, preventing water loss and desiccation. Okay. So how did you get started studying this? Um, so I'm interested in all sorts of structural polymers that plants have. Um, I started my research working back uh, many years ago um, looking at uh, polysaccharide cell walls, so things like cellulose and pectins and hemicellulose, and how those provide uh, the architecture of plants. And then um, through, <laughs> through purely by chance, trying to understand uh, how fruit texture and fruit softening happens, um, we stumbled across the importance of the cuticle and we worked with a tomato type that we found that the cuticle was a key factor in determining how fruit softened. How long have you been researching this? Um, I started my research lab at Cornell in 2000, so seems like 100 years ago. <laughs> but yeah, I guess uh, 24 years ago now. So you've been studying the importance of the fruit cuticle for more than two decades and have made some very interesting dis uh, discoveries. What are some of the most interesting things that you have learned along this way? Uh, I, think, I think perhaps the most interesting thing for me is how little we know. So I think uh, I gave an analogy in the presentation I just made that you know, we've learned a lot about the genes and proteins and mechanisms for forming and modifying polysaccharide cell walls and we realize they're very dynamic and I think what we're just starting to do is, is discover similar sorts of things for cuticles right we don't really understand how they're put together and as an organ expands or, or reacts to the environment uh, what the processes are that allows it to change itself to modify and restructure and remodel itself we're just starting to get the first insights into some of those processes so it's way more dynamic than you'd expect and I think also it's not a simply uniform structure I think we see variation across the surface across an organ from outside to inside so we're just starting again so dipping our feet into this world of saying well they're extremely complex <laughs> not simple waxy coverings and, and what about variations between uh, different types of fruit as well? Yeah, I, again, I think we, we have our model fruits and we understand you know, 
more because we, we focus on tomato. But uh, when we looked at other fruits, clearly enormous vari variations. And so you can look at uh, fruits in different kinds of different evolutionary classes, right? Different taxa. Um, but also looking at some of the wild relatives and even some of the similar cultivars, you see variation. So it's very dynamic again. You can look at, say, the wax profiles on the surface of a fruit, and they will change through the development of that fruit or growing the fruit in different conditions. So a huge spectrum of different types. Was there a reason why you are using tomatoes? Oh yeah, tomatoes is a, used as a model system for studying many aspects of fruit biology, right? And uh, for a number of reasons, I mean, that relate to it. Uh, well, number it's it's <laughs> it's a commercially very valuable. Um, it's uh, relatively easy to transform. Its genome has been sequenced. There's an enormous number of cultivars. There are wild relatives, and so from an evolutionary perspective, it's interesting. Uh, you can cultivate it under very relatively simple conditions. It's got a fairly rapid life cycle. You can store the seeds. So there's, there's a sort of shopping list of reasons. And so I think scientists around the world typically use tomato as a, as a very useful experimental system. And then try to understand how what we learn in tomato can apply to other kinds of fruits. So w with what you've learned in tomatoes, um, as far as the um, cuticle goes, are you seeing that, that is ab you're able to apply it to other fruits? Um, just starting out, right? So we're, we're looking at, for example, patterns of gene expression and enzyme activities and saying, well, we look at, it works this way in, tom in tomato. wonder if it works the same way in apple. Uh, or, and, and so I think, you know, I think we are, it's, <laughs> it's difficult to decide whether you want to go broad and look at one phenomenon across many, many species right. or dig deep into one thing and understand that uh, in, in, more, uh, in more depth. And I think right now we're sort of focusing on understanding the whole mechanism in tomato. But then we collaborate with wonderful research partners um, at Cornell and, and other parts of the world that come along and say, hey, what are we working on mango or we work on cherry and, and what do you think? So that's opportunities through collaboration. If you were to explain a little bit about your research to a, let's say, a middle school student, how would you explain what the fruit cuticle is and what you are studying? I'd say the fruit cuticle is like the plant's skin, right? We need your skin on your body to protect yourself. You've got to keep it clean. You've got to keep it healthy. It's got to be intact. If you cut yourself, you need a Band-Aid, right? Um, and it's the same thing with plants. They've got to adapt to the very tough world outside. They want a nice skin that they can keep clean right and that they can keep intact and keep healthy and as you grow and expand you don't want your skin to crack and uh, similarly with plants they've got to keep that surface so plants live in essentially all habitats on earth and they can thrive in deserts and up mountains and in very moist areas where there's lots of disease and the skin has evolved of plants the cuticle to uh, allow them to do that so you have, you have done um, a lot of research over the last nearly 25 years. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that research is funded. Um, so we apply for grants through federal funding agencies and particularly the, the USDA, ARS, um, the National Science Foundation, DOE. But we also work with um, companies as well that come in with very particular questions to, for example, looking at products or they want to look at our research in the field. But I think most of our work is through um, federal agencies. How important is it to keep ag research like this funded? It's critical. 
I, th I think is, is absolute lifeline. So we rely on federal dollars, but also state funding as well for basic research, but for translational research. And, and in my, my job, you know, we are very excited about taking the discoveries in the lab and translating it through our extension programs out into the fields and for growers and breeders. And at all levels, I think, getting that, those state dollars and those federal dollars are critical. That's how we're going to be able to provide food security for a population that's increasing on this planet and in the context of climate change and loss of agriculturally viable land. Thank you. That was the answer. That again, Joss Rose of Cornell University. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be right back. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour, and now for more news. A partnership hopes to lower the ethanol carbon score. David Geiger has this report. A major partnership in renewable fuels is announced. Poet and Summit Carbon Solutions will collaborate to capture biogenic CO2 from the production process. The companies say the partnership expands carbon opportunities across the Midwest using the 17 Poet facilities between South Dakota and Iowa. This will permanently store 4.7 million metric tons of CO2 annually. Bruce Rastetter with the Summit Agricultural Group says this is a major step forward for the next big renewable market. It's a big win for American grain farmers, American farmers, and in particular Iowa. And so that lowering of the carbon scores alongside our 34 other plants signed up will allow the, all those plants to be able to have low enough carbon scores to sell into sustainable aviation fuel, which is the important huge market for corn. There has been plenty of controversy over carbon pipelines, something Rastetter says is a key aspect of getting new markets like sustainable aviation fuels, especially since there is not much U.S. ethanol that has a carbon intensity score low enough to be used for SAF. And the only way Iowa ethanol plants can attain those markets is by decreasing their carbon scores. So when we put, when we capture their CO2 at the ethanol plant, and we put it in the ground in North Dakota. We lower their carbon score by 35 points, which allows them to be more than competitive against Brazilian sugarcane ethanol for that plant and other plants that are going to be built. It's a 50 billion gallon market. Rastetter claims the 6.5 billion gallons that we now have that would go into the pipeline would decarbonize 25% of the U.S. airline industry. They have that stated goal. We can do 25% out of corn ethanol, and it will grow. Those plants will grow, and we know we're growing more corn. Uh, the yields last year and the dry year were just unbelievable and really surprising. So uh, we need an expanded market, and ethanol is the way to do that. I'm David Geiger reporting. Lawmakers in the House of Representatives this week launched a new Agricultural Trade Caucus. The effort seeks to advance and promote policies vital to U.S. agriculture, including boosting agricultural exports, facilitating food and agriculture trade, and knocking down unnecessary trade barriers. The caucus includes California Democrats Jim Costa and Jimmy Panetta, and Republicans Adrian Smith of Nebraska and Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. In the announcement, Panetta says Congress needs to be more active in promoting trade agreements that will keep American producers competitive and empower them to feed the world. The new caucus will work to solidify support for trade policies that benefit farmers, ranchers, producers, and rural communities. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West.
Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.